Hello, I'm Mike Stutchbury. Welcome to the second episode of Get Fact, a podcast that fights fake history and shines a light on some of the past's more interesting moments. First, I'd like to say thank you for all the feedback on the first episode. Secondly, I'd like to apologise for the delay for this episode. As it turns out, I've been negotiating writing a book. Maybe even more than one. So, of course, things have been a little bit frantic. When I have more news on that front, I'm going to be absolutely delighted to share it with you. On this episode, we'll be looking at Norse runes, Islamic science, and I'll also be taking a look at the sad case of Joanna of Castile, as part of our series on Mad Monarchs. Sniff around the alt-right for long enough, and you'll find Norse runes popping up everywhere. Made popular by the Nazis, these strange angular characters are supposed to evoke a sort of mystical northern aura, Something of the lands of the ice and snow, from the midnight sun where the hot springs glow. (laughs) Sorry. What are runes, though, exactly? Where, how, and why were they used? We first see runes used shortly after the birth of Christ, in the form of an alphabet known as the Elder Futhark, named after its first six characters. We're not sure with certainty exactly where they originated, but there's substantial evidence to suggest that they were heavily influenced by the Etruscans of northern Italy. Trading networks are then to have brought them north, through the German lands and Denmark, to Scandinavia. Over the next millennium, it would be refined twice, once by the Anglo-Saxons and again by the Norse, to develop two further variations, Futhork and the younger Futhark. The Norse believed that one of their major gods, Odin, brought the runes to them, having hung himself on Yggdrasil, the world tree, for nine days and nights. He is said to have understood their innate mystical power, and it is undeniable that to begin with, runes were mostly used on amulets, weapons and stones to confer supposed power. However, as with most objects and ideas, meaning and significance change over time. We begin to see runes used across Germany and Scandinavia to indicate that someone has ventured somewhere carved into stone, kind of like a Hagar was here. By the end of the first millennium, not only do we see it used on personal possessions to indicate ownership, such as those found at Staraya Logda in modern Russia and Berka in Sweden, but in vernacular graffiti such as that left by the Varangian Guard, I always have trouble with that one, in the Hagia Sophia of Istanbul. As I stated before, the Nazis popularised the use of runes in the 1930s, most memorably in the Sig, Ger, Hagal and Todd runes employed by the SS. Emerging out of a field of northern racial occultism, they were supposed to give the impression of a proud, vanished, isolationist culture that fiercely defended their northern homelands. However, it's worth remembering that the Germanic peoples in the Norse across Scandinavia were for far from the isolationist people racists would like us to think. Not only did they trade widely across Europe, but we know that they traded slaves as far as Baghdad in the east, and had fishing grounds as far west as New Finland. Hell, we even know that some of them, having raided the coast of Spain, decided to convert to Islam. In a sense, these guys were among the prime internationalists of the early medieval period. So the next time you see a young man waving a flag with an Odar rune, that's the preferred replacement for the swastika, and looks like the Christian fish only sticking upwards and pretty angular, ask them how they feel about the Norsemen's extensive trade networks and ability to coexist alongside other peoples. I'd be really interested in their response. One thing I get a lot of on Twitter is far-right sorts and Islamophobes asking, what have Muslims ever invented? I suspect that many of you have faced the same sort of rhetoric. Let me help you out with a few easy answers next time you're presented with this question. Many of us are aware that the word algebra has an Arabic root. Algebra, 
and I'm sure I've got that wrong, please correct my pronunciation if it is, means the restoration or the reconciliation. And mathematicians out there will immediately see the significance of the name. From the 9th to the 15th centuries, Islamic mathematicians and scholars not only translated many early Greek texts that laid out the foundations of modern algebra, but refined it and introduced such vital elements as the substitution of letters or words for numbers. Muhammad ibn Musa al-Khwarizmi literally wrote the book on it around 830 CE as a means to solve problems in engineering and trade. Optics is another area in which Islamic thinkers and scientific pioneers would make strides in. Ibn al-Haytham, who lived in the 11th century, wrote his book of optics that not only reconciled various arguments about how the eye perceived the world via rays of light entering the eyes, but also helped create the scientific method in his replication and expansion of earlier experiments. He's one of the first people to use empiric reasoning to prove and disprove hypotheses. Haytham's work would lead the way for astronomers and navigators for centuries to come. Finally, it was through the work of early Islamic surgeons and physicians that their European counterparts were able to make advances in the post-Renaissance era. Copies of medical texts by figures such as Ibn al-Nafis and Mansur ibn Ilyas showed detailed anatomical discoveries, while the techniques detailed in other books by surgeons give us some of the first examples of antisepsis and anesthesia, albeit in a much more primitive form. The Islamic world was a vast repository of information in the post-classical period, and that knowledge was refined and acted upon to generate new discoveries. Indeed, it's only through some of their work that some of the towering giants of Western science were able to make their discoveries. So the next time someone asks you, what has Islam ever contributed in terms of science? Ask them whether they wear glasses, well, I mean, that should be obvious, whether they've had surgery or whether they use algebra in their work. That ought to get the conversation started. Last week, in our Mad King segment... I talked about a bloodthirsty, insane tyrant in the form of Khosrau II of the Abbasids. This week, I want to rename the segment Mad Monarchs and introduce a little nuance to things. I want to talk about how someone might be driven mad by circumstance, and how history might then remember them unfairly. Joanna of Castile was surrounded by power. Her parents were Ferdinand and Isabella of Spain, her sister Catherine of Aragon. In time, she would give birth to Charles V, the future Holy Roman Emperor. Yet we really don't talk that much about Joanna, and if we do, she's usually referred to as Joanna the Mad. There can be no doubt that Joanna was a passionate, impulsive young woman. She was the child of two powerful monarchs who had spent their lives working towards the unification of the Spanish kingdoms. It also cannot be denied that mental illness ran in her family. Her grandmother, Isabella of Portugal, had sunk into a depression and dissociative state following the death of her husband. Yet there is very little to suggest major instability, or mental illness, as a young woman. She was well-read, spoke several languages, and was known for her ability in dancing, horse-riding and singing. She had been groomed to make a successful marriage, and in 1496 she married Philip the Handsome, son of the Holy Roman Emperor. The two were immensely attracted to one another, at least to begin with, and the union soon produced several children. <laughs> they didn't mess about. What seems to have pushed Joanna towards her eventual mental instability was a potent combination of factors. Philip, not to put too fine a point on it, was a bit of a bastard, and soon resumed his former womanising ways, driving the genuinely besotted Joanna into paroxysms of jealousy. Joanna's servants left after they couldn't be paid. Soon, she was very much isolated. A return home to Spain from Flanders didn't fix things. Philip detested how formal and stiff people were in the Spanish court, and he took it out on his wife. Joanna's father, Ferdinand, 
resented the fact that, it, that his time as regent of Castile in Joanna's stead was coming to an end. Philip, fed up with his in-laws, decided to return to Flanders. Joanna tried to follow him, but was prevented so due to war breaking out between Spain and France, blocking her way. Things were going from bad to worse. Joanna did manage to return to Flanders in 1504, and went berserk on finding out that Philip had, in fact, shacked up with a mistress. She is reported to have attacked the woman and beaten those who tried to stop her with a stick. Wild, violent arguments between Joanna and Philip continued right up until he fell sick towards the end of the year and soon died, possibly a victim of the sweating sickness. This seems to have been the real trigger for Joanna's madness. Gruesome stories will have you believe that she kept Philip's corpse with her as it decomposed, yet records show that instead she kept on having the co coffin reopened to view her husband's remains. A little less vivid, perhaps, but still, you've got to admit, pretty strange behaviour. Following Philip's death, Ferdinand had Joanna shut up in the castle of Tordesillas and ruled in her place, issuing declarations in her name for years. When he died in 1516, Joanna's son, Charles V, came to Spain to claim his titles and he visited her. He found her in a very sorry state, only eating bread and cheese, with her young daughter Catalina dressed in ragged clothing. Joanna kept talking of hearing her dead husband speaking to her, and in the end, Charles figured it was best that she was left there. Ultimately, Joanna would live at over 30 more years, dying in 1555. Separated from her husband of almost 50 years, she'd be buried with him in Granada. In my opinion, Joanna's troubles were more the consequence of a number of powerful individuals and rigid court intrigues rather than any natural predisposition. At every turn, she was prevented from expressing herself or following her own heart in the interests of politics. Isolation coupled with infidelity, jealousy, and what we'd consider spousal abuse, is enough to bring about any number of mental health issues. I may revel in telling the gruesome stories of insane monarchs and poke a little fun at the current US president, but as historians and fans of history alike, it's worth considering just how much of a historical figure's reputation is due to their own actions, and how much is due to the action of others. So that's it for the second episode of Get Fact, and hopefully there's much more to come soon. I'm working on a schedule to give you regular doses of this sort of goodness, but, uh, you know, and longer too. So if you like it and you want to encourage me, please consider subscribing to my Patreon at patreon.com mikestatchbury underscore, or making a one-off donation at paypal.me slash mikestatchbury. All the money is reinvested into the show in terms of books and equipment and things like that, so it's not just me living high on, on the proceeds of history. Until next time, this is Mike Stutchbury telling you all to get fact. Bye. <laughs>